Hello, and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. Her name is Orta, and my name is Chris. To be honest, I'm still mourning the death of King Chris in our last couple of episodes, so what better way to get past that doom and gloom by looking at a bit of a peripheral character during Chris's reign, but one that had a crazy bonkers life. Yes, this is one of those episodes that started with a single sentence in a book, but has led to an entire episode of a sort of half-tangent story. This could perhaps have been a Tangent Time episode, but either way, it really just adds colour to the last few episodes, and it's a great example of how Norway, in particular, fit into the back and forth between KKB of Sweden and Christian of Denmark. But before we let you know more about the main character of today, let's start with a Swedish phrase of the week. And this one is... Om god vill och skåna hålla. And that means if God is willing and the shoes last. Is this something that Swedish people say before they go hiking? Uh, maybe. Hiking is a popular activity in Sweden. But basically what it is, is to express hope that something that's going to happen is going to go well. You're saying it as a caveat when mentioning a future event that you hope will happen or that you wish for. And when you say skorna holla, that shoes last, and you mean that in the sense of they don't fall apart or break. Exactly. So you could say, for example, if God is willing and the shoes last, my son will get into his first-hand choice for university. He should be getting his acceptance letter this week. There are actually several versions of this phrase, all starting with the bit, if God is willing, and then something random like shoes. So you could also say, om Gud vill och byxorna håller, if God is willing and the trousers don't rip, or om Gud vill och vädret tillåter, if God is willing and the weather allows for it. Well, that last one's more applicable to the hiking probably than shoes, or uh, I don't know, maybe a bit of both. But that was a new phrase to me, at least. Um, I don't know if I'm going to start using it, maybe. But now it's time to start this story, and we should perhaps start on the Isle of Man in 1275. Sure, why? Well, actually, let's go even further back to 1266, and that was when King Magnus IV of Norway, before the Kalmar Union was a thing, recognised that Scotland would have control over the Hebrides and the Isle of Man, Shetland and Orkney in return for a lump sum of 4,000 marks. This ended nearly 170 years of Norwegian rule over the Isle of Man. And as a result, the Scottish king appointed four bailiffs to run the island, and these officials took several locals, known as Manx, hostage. Not being particularly happy about this, a man called Gudred Magnusson, an illegitimate son of the last king of man and the isles, locals of Norwegian-style rulers of that area, he revolted a decade later in 1275 because he didn't want the Scottish people to rule over the Isle of Man. They wanted continued Manx rule over the island and not have these Scots come in, and they wanted to be able to fit into the formal structure of the Kingdom of Norway instead and pay homage to the King of Norway. 
This led to the King of Scotland invading the island and restoring Scottish royal authority. A small battle occurred with, quote, the lightly armed and poorly trained rebels were soundly crushed by well-armed Scottish warriors. However, either Gudrid or at least some of his leading noblemen escaped the battle and fled to Norway. Indeed, and as Manx historian George Young claims, that family then became known as the Norwegian Skanka family of nobles. And the Skanka family's use of a leg in its heraldry and in its coat of arms has been compared to the Manx Triskelion. And George Young writes in his book A Brief History of the Isle of Man that The rebellion of 1275 was, however, aborted and resulted in some members of the royal family emigrating to Norway, where their descendants are still to be found in the royal family of Skankers and the Swedish family of Skunkers. The emigrants took with them their arms, the three legs, which had been the royal arms of the kings of man since about the middle of the 13th century. The arms were simplified in Norway and Sweden to one leg, and in Denmark to three bare feet, and later to one bare foot. Uh, There we go. An exiled Manx royal family fled to Norway, changed their name, but kept part of their heraldic iconography. Sounds like an excellent start of a story. But in this episode, we are specifically concerned with one man and later his wife. That man is Olav Nilsson Skanke, a Norwegian nobleman. At this point, the family came from the Jämtland region, which, whilst now Swedish, was Norwegian between 1178 and 1645. In around 1420... Olaf is born into this family and slowly starts climbing the ranks of the Norwegian bureaucracy. As a young man, he was bailiff in Iceland in 1423, and then he's first mentioned in written sources in 1424 as a royal official in the city of Trondheim. And this is, of course, where the famous Nidaros Cathedral is, a place of pilgrimage, Norwegian royal coronations, and general political power in the country. And from 1152, Trondheim has been the seat of the Archbishop of Nidaros, basically all of Norway, and he operated from the Archbishop's Palace, and we saw the city and the Archbishop entertain Pietro Quirini for a while on his epic journey home from northern Norway in 1432. Ulov starts to venture out a bit further, enforcing Norwegian trade rights. Some sources say that in 1424, whilst working as a royal official in Trondheim, he was sent to sea to try and rein in English fishermen and merchants who sailed in Norwegian waters in violation of Norway's special trade rights. Unfortunately, this didn't work out so well, as he is said to have ended up as a prisoner in England in 1424 to 1425. And that must have been a really dramatic event, but unfortunately we don't really know much more about this part of his life, but it seems like he was released and sent back to Norway. So yeah, he was trying to be a sea policeman, uh, scaring off all these English fishermen and traders, but ended up being captured himself. But this ordeal didn't put him off working at sea though, because he then took this experience of sailing and commanding vessels, and became one of King Eric of Pomerania's privateer captains in 
in the Baltic Sea during the war against the Holsteiners and the Hanseatic cities in the latter half of the 1420s. So he's, yeah, he's become a pirate, basically. Okay, so he started off essentially being a tax official or something along those lines in Iceland. Then he was doing more or less the same in Trondheim, but then he gets taken prisoner by some English merchants and then Eric taps him up and he becomes a state-sponsored pirate targeting Hansa shipping in the Baltic Sea. I mean, this is quite a career already. It certainly took a turn there at one point. So he is operating in the Baltic Sea, presumably from Swedish ports, in a war that's mainly between Denmark and the Hansa. This is a true indication of how these noble families are becoming more drawn into the Kalmar Union as a bigger entity and this pan-Nordic life, uh, as we mentioned previously. Yeah, exactly. He's definitely playing his part. And during this time as a state-sponsored pirate, he becomes even more involved with Denmark, because in around 1430, Olaf married Elise Eskild's daughter from Skorna, a lady from the Danish nobility and the daughter of a knight. Perhaps they met whilst Olaf was busy being a pirate in that part of the world. Interestingly, the marriage of Olaf and Elise was one of relatively equal partners. That's because Elise personally owned large properties in Skorna, and we'll definitely come to see later on, she was a very determined, ambitious and energetic lady. But yeah, we'll come back to see the pivotal role she has to play later in the episode. Olaf and Elise had at least five children. We know of Olaf, Nils, Axel and Magdalena by name. Olaf later became a royal official and bailiff in Bergen, probably in the autumn of 1437 and at least from June 1439, when he also titled himself Hidstjure in Iceland. Not sure of the pronunciation there, but it's another representative of the king. So yeah, he's uh, heading back to Iceland and working there a bit as well, but also having his main position in Bergen. And this was all happening around the same time as King Chris was wanting to improve his relations with the common people of his realm, having come to power following all those rebellions against his predecessor, King Eric. A lot of the people revolting against King Eric were against the fact that lots of foreign officials were being appointed, especially in Norway and Sweden. And then these officials, as well as bishops and priests, really began to exploit the people he was ruling over. And one of the main efforts of King Chris to mend these relations was to appoint a commission to process the complaints of all the people of Norway, something we didn't really get into in the last episode as it's a, a very specific thing in Norway. But the chairman of this commission was our man Olaf Nielsen. And this happened at the same time as Olaf was appointed this job of being chief royal official in Bergen, a bit like a bailiff and a commander. And Bergen at the time was the main trading centre and harbour of Norway. This meant that he was also in command of the impressive Bergenhus fortress in the city. Let's talk a little bit about that fortress as it is an interesting place with an interesting past and also interesting events in more recent Norwegian history happened there as well. 
Yeah, and Bergen itself is a lovely place. I've been there at least 10 times, I think. It's very hard to count. <laughs> I've never actually been, but I've been to an oil trading port just outside. So you are doing the Hansa equivalent you know, on one of your dad's ships. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, but I would love to see the actual city as well at some point. The fortress there contains buildings dating back as far back as the 1240s, as well as later constructions, in fact built as recently as World War II. But in medieval times, the area of the present-day Bergenhus fortress was known as Holmen and contained the royal residence in Bergen, as well as the cathedral, several churches, and the bishop's residence. It was near the Bryggen, or Tyskebryggen, in the city, literally the dock, or the German dock. And as you can guess, it was where the Hansa built their commercial buildings, uh, starting their so-called contour there in 1350. So right at the start of the Black Death, by the way. Bad timing to start a business venture, but uh, they managed and it quickly became the hub for the Hansa in Norway. Partly because of this introduction of the Hansa, Bergen quickly developed into this important trading centre. The wharfs and facilities at the docks were improved, and the buildings of Bryggen were slowly but surely all taken over by the Hansa merchants. The huge warehouses there were used to store goods, uh, particularly the stockfish from northern Norway that we saw in Quirini's episode, and also cereal from Europe. And we saw in Quirini's episode just how much stockfish was shipped down to Bergen and onwards, and how important it was for the Norwegian economy. So it's no surprise that the Hansa wanted to get involved in all this action. Oh, yummy, yummy stockfish. Back to the fortress. It was first enclosed by stone walls in the 1240s. Of all the medieval structures, the medieval hall and a defensive tower are still around today. The Royal Hall, today known as Håkon's Hall, was built around 1260, with the defensive tower coming a decade or so later, which contained a royal apartment on the top floor as well. Håkon's Hall was the largest building of the royal palace in Bergen. It is the largest secular medieval building in Norway, and the likely inspiration to similar great halls that were built on royal estates in Oslo and in Arvalsnes. And interestingly, the hall's similarity to English structures at the time, and the fact that monumental stone building was pretty uncommon in Norway at this time, has led to an assumption that the hall was designed by English architects, and possibly the court architect of King Henry III of England, who King Hawkon was on friendly terms with. Uh, you know, it would be nice to guess that uh, Olaf perhaps met this person whilst he was prisoner in England, but that's uh, almost certainly not true. We're just making that up. Unfortunately, the hall has been hit by several fires over the years. The first one as early as 1266, just a few years after it was built. So they didn't put in the fire extinguishers in, on time, clearly. Just a few years before Olaf took up his position there in 1429, the fortress and hall were captured and burned by the Vitali pirates. But the hall was rebuilt after that event, although we're not sure if that would have been done in time for Olaf to move in there when he came to Bergen in the end of the 1430s. 
dramatic early life for the fortress. Definitely. Soon after, though, however, as the old royal residence was transformed into a purely military fortress, the hall was turned into a storage building. So this was the sort of place that Olaf Nilsson was in charge of, something that had just recovered from a fire around a decade earlier and was now being used for storage. It was where Iwilov would have been hanging out and helping to run the city from, as well as being close by to keep an eye on the German merchants flowing in and out of the dock. And uh, whilst we're in Norway, let's skip massively ahead to World War II. The German occupying forces in Norway used Bergenhus Fortress as their headquarters for the region. Among other things, the German Navy's operational commander for the area, the Sea Commandant, had his office at the fortress. Yes, and it was there on the 20th of April 1944 that the biggest single disaster in Norway during World War II occurred. At the Fortress Key, north of Bradbenken, the Dutch ship Forborde, which was loaded with dynamite for use by the German occupying forces, exploded. The dynamite exploded at 8 in the morning, 158 people lost their lives, including 102 Norwegians, and around 4,800 people were injured. Civilian buildings, warehouses and vessels were lost, and cultural monuments like Hakon's Hall and the Rosenkranztornet at Bergenhus were also destroyed in this terrible accident. Somewhat conspiratorially, because the disaster actually occurred on Hitler's birthday, the Nazis believed that this was clearly due to sabotage from the Norwegian resistance, but then investigations soon shown that some sort of combustion in the bunker coal was the cause of the explosion, so it wasn't actually any work by the resistance at all. And immediately after the war, the Norwegian authorities started to restore the damaged buildings, and so we're lucky to have some of them still around to this day, because quite quickly after the war they started fixing all these things like the fortress. But whilst he was in charge of this historical building, Olaf had to deal with major problems himself relating mainly to the Hansa. So it's the Germans again, <laughs> just commercially instead of World War II Nazi Germans. Uh, this is because perhaps chief among the foreign influences that were detested by the Norwegian people at the time was the Hanseatic League. Or even worse than the Danish bailiffs being put in charge and corrupt bishops and clergy. This was because the Hansa operated outside of Norwegian law and conducted themselves with indecency and violence, according to the locals. The citizens of Bergen complained to Olav, but the official was not able to get support from either the king or the king's government to do anything about this, as they needed to keep the Hansa on side to a certain extent. We've seen how important all this trade was to the Kalmar Union's economy, and a few upset local traders and peasants in Bergen isn't enough to make any drastic changes to the working relationship that the Kalmar Union now enjoyed with the Hansa. 
But Olaf is now getting well and truly fed up with the Hansa, and so acting alone and employing supposedly harsh methods, he began punishing those amongst the Hanseatic League who committed crimes against the city's citizens, thus earning the hatred of the League. He wasn't really supposed to do this, he was supposed to just turn a blind eye and let these dodgy things happen, but he takes a personal stand against this. Going one step further, he occasionally carried out attacks against both English and Hanseatic shipping from the 1840s attacked ships off western Norway and in the North Sea, trying to keep order in Bergen and just generally taking a bit of personal revenge against those who he saw as enemies of the peace, so he's really getting into his role. Around 1440, he also received the fiefdom of Ryfylke near Bergen as his personal property. During King Chris's coronation in Oslo in the summer of 1442, Olav was knighted, and from then on, he was also a member of the Riksråd, the Norwegian Council of the Realm. So he is really climbing up the ladder at this point. From 1444, he presided over the court as the king's special deputy on the council as well. However, King Chris immediately started to act even more lenient towards the Hanseatic League and their trade influence in the north than any other king before him, which especially extended to Norway, and by logical extension, to their work in their main trading hub in Norway, Bergen. And this meant that the crown, of course, started to look down on Olaf's activities against the Hansa. And the king was in debt to the Hanseatic League and had to give them more privileges than normal in Bergen as a way to make good on this debt. And so as early as 1446, the League started to issue official complaints against Olaf at a Bergen town council meeting and tried to get him kicked out of office. He was getting on their nerves that much. But uh, before that could happen, though, in 1448, King Chris died, oh, sad times, and uh, the Kalmar Union started to fall into chaos, as we saw in the previous episode. In all of this drama, Olaf initially supported Karl Knutsen Bunda during his struggle for the throne of both Sweden, Norway, and the Kalmar Union. However, the fact that King Christian down in Denmark then promised to guarantee the Norwegian Council's position in Norway was probably the main reason why we saw Olaf and the majority of the KKB faction then switch sides and join Christian instead. Olaf was among the issuers of a letter from the Riksrådet, from the council, in July of 1449, stating that King Christian had been made Norwegian king, but he himself did not seal it. That's Olaf not sealing the letter. At Christian's coronation in August 1450, Olaf helped confirm this tribute and heaped disapproval on KKB's previous supposedly illegitimate coronation in Norway. Later, Olaf was involved in concluding the Treaty of Bergen, which ensured the union between Norway and Denmark, this taking place when Christian visited the city as part of his efforts to consolidate power in the country. So yes, Olaf really is not only in the thick of things, but he is really helping to secure King Christian's control over Norway right now. This is only going to become more concrete soon after this trip and the Union Treaty is concluded. 
Indeed. Now, in the last episode, we saw how in 1452, KKB sent forces from Jämtland to conquer Trondheim, the ancient centre of Norway's kings, because control of this vital city would have greatly strengthened the Swedish king's claim to the throne in Norway too. The Danes were quick to act, though, and Olaf Nilsson himself marched north with his brother Perda before they managed to defeat the Swedes and kick them out, and KKP tried again the next year, but they beat them again too. So they're really involved in defending Norway as well during this period of internal instability in the Kalmar Union. But despite successes on the battlefield, Olaf is perhaps not having as much success on the diplomatic side of things down in Bergen. And this is because he's still trying, in using back channels, to be a determined practitioner of the Norwegian Council's policy of refusing the Hanseatic merchant's right to trade directly with Norwegian producers and consumers to the detriment of domestic Norwegian middlemen. So that's a bit confusing, so let's just explain it a little bit more. Yeah, because this is an important part of the Hanses' trade at this time. Whilst they settled in towns such as Kalmar, Bergen and Stockholm and made a handsome living there, they were not supposed to buy goods directly from Norwegian or Swedish producers like farmers, but instead they were supposed to buy goods from local middlemen so that not all the profit left the country and that Norwegian and Swedish merchantmen could also make some money. They were also trying to force German craftsmen to obey Norwegian law and the general public when it came to their duties in the towns and cities that they lived in. A lot of the German traders took up citizenship in these towns and cities where they moved to start up their businesses and therefore they had to obey local rules even more so. So Olav ensured that these German tradesmen were to perform military service when required, for example, and yeah, just generally obey by the same rules as uh, any Norwegian living in Bergen. And you can see why this would be problematic for German-Norwegian relationship, especially if you're forcing the Hansa traders to perform military service. So despite these policies being brought in with the blessing of the Norwegian council, both King Chris and King Christian broke with this policy after initially supporting it because they needed the Hansa's support. Chris needed the support in his campaign to take Gotland, which we talked about, and Christian also needed help in dealing with KKB. And all this meant that the Norwegian Council had to drop several of the laws and ways of dealing with the Hansa that they wanted to bring in or keep going. But not for good old Olaf. As chief of Bergen and sheriff of his own fiefdom, he nevertheless stuck to his harsh line that he's always taken against the Germans. And it seems like he was helped by this locally in Bergen by two other members of the Norwegian Council, his brother Perda and the local bishop Torleiv of Bergen. But we saw how the Hansa were complaining before, and this time they're going right to the top. After numerous complaints, King Christian finally had to yield to the pressure of the Hansa merchants, and in 1453 he dismissed Olav as commander of Bergen. We can tell from his behaviour coming up that this dismissal greatly shocked and angered Olav, who felt he was uh, being unjustly treated after his long and loyal service to the kings of the Kalmar Union and to the people of Norway. 
I mean, I can kind of see his point because previous kings have failed to sack commanders and bailiffs for much, much worse than this. Um, so yeah, I, I can see why he would think this is a bit harsh. But though, when many people might just give up and go back to his small fiefdom and rule around there and think, oh, well, I've had a good 30-odd year career now. I can you know, start to wind down now I'm in my late 50s. Olaf doesn't do this. He refuses to take this blow lying down. He then tried everything in his power to get his position back in Bergen and put everything he had at hand to try and fulfill this task. In April 1455, Olaf met with the king down in Copenhagen. The following July, he got his role back as ruler of Bergen. Now there are a whole bunch of possible reasons for why this might have happened, and they're all excellent potential reasons, so let's look into them. The first one, perhaps most boring, but also interesting from a political perspective, is that the king needed as much support from the Norwegian council as possible to continue his war against Sweden. As always, Norwegian taxes were being used to fund this, and so King Christian would have needed Olaf's support in the council as well as that of his brother and the Bishop of Bergen. So maybe this was just a way to get Olaf back on his side, giving him the most important administrative post in the country in return for his support on the council. Yeah, because even though he's been sacked and kicked out of Bergen, he's still an important part of the Norwegian council and has got influence there. So that definitely seems like it could be a reason. And like we said, whilst boring, it might be the most logical one. But we'll uh, look at the other ones next, because there are two variants on the next story. One that's sort of daring and adventure. Because according to Hanseatic sources, Olaf and his followers had sieged and captured the fortress at Els Boy, near present-day Gothenburg, from the Danes, and then only handed it back to King Christian as part of an extortion deal. I've taken your fancy castle that's actually quite important during this war against KKB, and I'm only going to give it back to you when you make me rule of Bergen again. So he's doing this against his own king. I mean, in any other time, this would have been outright silly, as the king would simply muster an army and take you out. But this is in the middle of the war against KKB, so it would have maybe saw his chance and just struck. Another version has it that Olav is joining up with KKB to take the fortress from the Danes, but then decided to give it back in return for his job. So slight difference, but still very interesting alternatives. Yeah, so that's you know story two two a. But there's an even more interesting and fun story that we're going to say now, and this is that after his dismissal, Olaf supposedly left Bergen and went to his manor house on Talgar Island, and this is where he starts setting the wheels in motion towards getting his revenge, both against the king and the Hansa in particular. And this is when he supposedly equipped several ships and started again to wage a private naval war against the Hanseatic League by attacking and seizing its ships in the North Sea. And he was operating from a base on the east coast of Scotland sometimes, apparently, and he captured a large percentage of the Hanseatic vessels heading for Bergen, both increasing his fortune and his fleet. 
And at this time, both his wife Elise and two of his sons were commanding their own ships in this pirate fleet, harrying the Hansa vessels. Elise was especially successful, supposedly, and rapidly became renowned all over Northern Europe for her wisdom and bravery. I mean, this is crazy. A Norwegian noble family waging a private war against Hansa shipping in the North Sea and the fact that his wife is getting involved as well, that sounds amazing. Small spoiler though, some sources might be getting confused with what happens later in the story. So just keep that in the back of your mind that this might not be entirely correct. Yeah, at least chronologically, this might be happening slightly later in the story. But according to the story, after this bit of pirating, Olaf then gathered his men and travelled to Elsboy Castle, like we mentioned in uh, version 2 and 2a. And it's said that he hid his men outside the fortress whilst he dressed himself as a poor peasant, and he went up to the gate and was allowed in, and this was when he pretended to be a messenger from the Danish army that was busy fighting the Swedes. And he says, help, help, uh, we're about to lose against the Swedes. We need as much men from this fortress to go down and uh, help us down in the battlefield. And so then these these uh, guys left. The fortress commander takes his men out of the castle and leaves. And so then Olaf just like, sort of sneaks in and uh, takes the entire fortress by himself. And this is sort of essentially the same as the scene in Return of the Jedi when Han Solo dresses up as a Imperial ATST commander and gets all the stormtroopers to leave the bunker so they can go in and capture it. But um, Orsa's got a blank look on her face. Yeah, I famously fell asleep when you made me watch all the Star Wars movies, so I, I'm sure your analogy is absolutely correct. Was the golden robot involved in that? Um, sort of. He was around. Oh, okay. He's the only one I really care about. That and the music are the two things I like about the Star Wars movies. Anyway, back to Ulov and Bergen in the 1400s. So by this time, he is trying to extort the king and get his position in Bergen back. All part of this master plan. You might wonder why the king would agree to this, though, even during a war, as it's just one castle after all. However, this castle was of vital importance to the Swedes due to its strategic location commanding the shipping routes between Denmark and Norway. In addition to occupying this favourable blocking position, Erfsboy was also the major Swedish strongpoint on the small strip of land that Sweden controlled since the mid-13th century, which was Sweden's only access to the Skagerrak and the North Sea. If Olof had given it over to the Swedes, or if he indeed was working with KKB, then it would have been very important in determining the way the war would turn out. Yeah, so the situation is very tense with the war raging on around them, and Olaf made it clear that he would only surrender the fortress into Danish hands if he was reinstated to his former position in Bergen. If these conditions weren't met, he would just hand the fortress over to the Swedes. In effect, Olaf committed an act of extortion against the king. As the fortress was of so great importance in the rivalry between Sweden and Denmark, Christian basically had no choice but to agree to his vigilante knight's demands. I mean, there are a whole bunch of stories there. I'm tempted to go along with the giant 
pirate action plan, but in reality, it's perhaps more likely that it is all just part of the political intrigue at the Norwegian court, and Christian needed Olaf's vote in the council to ensure that the Norwegians support his war against Sweden and KKB, and there isn't the chance of a rebellion brewing up against him. Yeah, so he's using it to secure his own power. But um, I like the idea that he at least in some way took the castle and ransomed it back to the king. Uh, That's a a fun story. But whichever story was the truth, Olaf and his family returned to their home city of Bergen in a triumphant manner. He was given the keys to Bergenhus Castle and settled back at his desk ready to get to work, uh, dealing with all the paperwork that his, uh, his predecessor had left for him, no doubt. Yeah, but here is where it all goes downhill. Yeah, because the hands are a bit like the elephant who never forgets. At a session of the court in Bergen, some rowdy German traders start to make their feelings heard when uh, Olaf turns up and they know, oh man, this guy's back, we hate this guy. And just two days after arriving back in the city, on the 1st of November 1455, Olaf starts to think that he might have to bash a few German heads together again to get a grip on his city, because things aren't looking that that good, really. These Germans are getting pretty angry. He probably looked around the building, though, safe in the knowledge his brother Perder and the Bishop Torleve of Bergen were there with him, along with his own son Niels. Um, so they were probably getting ready to support him to take whatever action he wanted to do against the Hansa to get them under control. But however it happened, we don't really know how, things soon got quickly out of hand. Some Germans tried to attack Olaf during the court meeting, and there were so many angry German traders there that they just had to flee. So they rushed down the streets, a crowd is forming behind them, they ran all the way to the nearby monastery, which was a Brigittine abbey at that point, but the German crowd did not let this stop them. Ulov, his brother Peter, his son Nils, Bishop Tuolev, they were shown no mercy. The Germans caught up with them and murdered them. Not a very good day back at the office after a few years off. No, I mean, we've all had difficult days at work, but it's pretty bad when you're murdered. With your brother and your son and your bishop buddy. (laughs) Yeah, not good at all. So whether or not they were killed outside or they were chased into the monastery, that's unclear. But the monastery is soon burned to the ground as well. This is really getting from bad to worse. In all, 60 people died in this riot by the German merchants, all supposedly in revenge for piracy and strict laws that Ulov had used to persecute the Hansa merchants. Some particularly vicious rumours spread that the king himself had actually told the Germans to kill Ulov, which you could potentially imagine might be the case if Ulov had indeed tried to exploit the king by ransoming Elfsboy Castle to him. 
this would be a good way to make the Hansa happy and to get rid of this troublesome freewheeling knight, but we don't know that for sure. No, but like you said, it would potentially make sense if um, Olaf was trying to uh, extort the king. Either way, the Germans robbed four chests of valuables that Olaf and his wife had deposited in Stavanger Cathedral, and they looted his main estate and manor house. This is obviously a huge event, and you wouldn't expect the king to just sit by and do nothing whilst this main trading town in Norway is burnt down. But in order to keep up good relations with the Hanseatic cities, or perhaps because he had actually secretly ordered the whole thing to begin with, King Christian didn't really ask for any legal cases to be brought against the Germans for these outrageous acts of violence. He was just really keen to sweep it all under the carpet. And so that was it. The dramatic life of Olav Nilsson Skanke. But hang on. I think in our story here we see something. There's a woman on a dock somewhere, perhaps putting on an eye patch getting on a boat. It's Olaf's widow, Elise, who managed to escape the massacre by disguising herself as a nun. This is like uh, a weird prequel to Sound of Music right now. She disguises herself as a nun, and now, this they didn't put this in Sound of Music, she is going to get her revenge. Yes, because this leads us to the title of the episode, Pirates Gonna Pirate. Elise and her surviving children now embark on a decades-long pirate war against the Hansa. They want compensation and they want revenge for the death of their husband or their father. The fact she was a woman meant nothing to Elise, and so she uses her family's experience and money and equips a fleet, or re-equips her husband's old fleet, and sets out into the North Sea, attacking any German merchant ship she lays sight on. This is pretty amazing for the 1450s, you've got to say. Whilst revenge is top of the list, Elise is also aiming to get the king to push for legal compensation from the Hansa. At some point, she heads to Lübeck to complain to the mayor and the council in this major Hansa town about the murders and demand compensation. But without the backing of King Christian, there was little she could really do. And so back to sea it was. Frustrated at the lack of any official support, Elise and her children went on to continue their private pirate war against the Germans and inflicted great losses on them. The length of this campaign is highlighted by the fact that her eldest son, who was also called Olav, was killed in a shipwreck in 1465 as part of this campaign, so that's 10 years after the murder of Olav in Bergen. They're still going on. Yeah, Elise is probably the most experienced sea captain in Scandinavia at this point. Now, this is a relatively standalone story at this point, so we'll just continue to the end. Um, it just means we're not going to name the king when we start talking about the king, because at some point in time that the king is going to change, but we don't want to give any spoilers for the rest of the story. That's why we're not mentioning who the king is or when any potential change might happen or may not happen. <laughs> Trying to be <laughs> as vague as possible. Um, but yes, in 1469, a legal campaign campaign finally starts like rolling forward a bit and ruled that the Hansa should give compensation to Elise. 
But when this happened, the king returned the fines to the Hansa, as, like all Scandinavian kings, he needed to keep them in his good books. At the same time, the crown and the king took away the fiefdom of Rifilka from Elise, on the grounds that she was no longer his friend and he couldn't trust her fidelity anymore. I mean, that that bit is probably fair enough, as she was waging a private war against the merchants keeping the economy of the Kalmar Union alive. So, yeah, couldn't really trust her fidelity is probably pretty accurate. But she's not just doing that. She clearly keeps a strong connection to Bergen, as in this time the monastery had been rebuilt and Elise had donated two large bells to the tower there. There were 85 members of the Bridgetine Order in 1462, which was temporarily based somewhere else whilst it was reconstructed, and it was eventually reoccupied by the Bridgetines in 1480. Because of this generosity to the city and the monastery, sources say that whenever Elise arrived in Bergen, she was received with great honour. One particular occasion in 1476, perhaps on the occasion of uh, donating these bells to the abbey, she visited the abbey. Mysteriously, the same night, Bryggen, that main Hansa part of the docks in Bergen, uh, it burnt down and enormous values were lost uh, to the Hansa office. So, uh, suspicious... Yeah, I mean, there's no connection mentioned anywhere in the sources, but it is uh, the sound a bit suspicious that, yeah, she returns to Bergen and all this German stuff suddenly catches fire. And this is 21 years after the death of Olaf in the original monastery, so this lady's holding a very long grudge. In a history of Bergen written in the middle of the 1500s, she's described as having the nature of a man in her heart because of this campaign. Finally, in 1483, the king promised in an agreement with nobles to help get a proper fine for Olaf Nilsson's death. Axel Olafsson, the son of Olaf, signed an agreement with the king and they agreed on sharing the fine. So the king wasn't just doing it out of the goodness of his heart, he also wanted some of this money. However, the Germans were slow in agreeing to actually get around and paying this, so the pirate war continues. <laughs> However, it was probably unlikely that Elise herself was at sea at this point. If she was around 16 when she got married in 1430, she would have been 68 at the point of this agreement, and even older when in 1490, after literally decades of private pirate warfare, the Hansa did agree to pay 7,000 marks in fines to the family of Elise. So this is 45 years after the murder of Ulov and their son, Elise. That's just, um, like, that is determination. <laughs> yeah, so is this where the story ends? Well, you wish. Uh, after the family got the payment, you're saying, okay, fine, 45 years of pirate war, that's enough, I'm going to go sit down. But that's not what happens, because the Nilsons promised that as long as German trading vessels sailed to and from Bergen, the family would continue their struggle against Hansa shipping. Because, yeah, pirates don't retire, pirates are... Gonna pirate. This part of the campaign was led by their son Axel until his death in 1494, but he was also supported by his sister Magdalena. 
But sadly, not even pirates live forever. Elise died in around 1492 or 1493 at the conservatively young age of 75, but she could have been as old as 90 if she was born in the same year as her husband. We're we're not sure of the date of her birth. But not long after, like we mentioned, Axel died too, and the family's campaign against the Hansa and the Germans finally died down. Personally, I don't even know where to begin here. What a lady, what a story, what a husband, and what a mad bit of history. All because uh, we became interested in one sentence in one of our books. Yeah, this has been a brilliant and great look, not only at this one family, but at how the politics and economics really did continue to all revolve around relations with the Hansa at this point, even whilst the Kamal Union was busy tearing itself apart and KKB fighting with King Christian and all of that stuff and things we're going to see continue to happen in the future because we went uh, a few decades into the future covering this pirate war, so there's more to come on on that. And you can see why, though, that looking back at this uh, pirate campaign by Elise after his death, why some people might want to believe the alternative that Olaf went on the pirate campaign against the Hansa when he was sacked as ruler of Bergen. So it just fits in. Uh, it was like, oh, well, he was a pirate before, then he was a pirate after. But um, yeah, it's, it's not entirely clear if the bit beforehand happened. And if it didn't, that makes it more likely that uh, he just did a deal with uh, King Christian to support him in the Norwegian Council. So there's, yeah, like we said, there's a few versions of the previous part that have a bit of doubt cast upon them because of the how the way the story ends. But either way, there's still plenty of pirate action, whichever version you want to believe. Yeah, like you said, either way, there is something for everyone in this story. It is absolutely crazy. So yeah, that was the story of Olaf and his family and his wife Elise and their trials and tribulations with the Hansa. And like we said at the start, we thought this would be a good mini segue in the timeline because of what it tells you about uh, the turmoil of society in the Kalmar Union. Exactly. So we hope you enjoyed that. Next time, we'll be back looking at the people at the very top, as we'll see who picks up the crown of Sweden now that KKB has fled to Danzig following the rebellion against him that was led by the Swedish archbishop. Yes, and King Christian down in Denmark is no doubt eager to get that crown himself and fulfil his plan of becoming king of all three kingdoms in the Kalmar Union. By the time we get to next time there, you'll hopefully see something different to do with the podcast too. Yes, because in two weeks' time, just before we release the next episode, we will be updating our podcast logo. So if you see that excellent picture of us in historical get up on a gray background in the future don't worry that's still us that's still the same podcast if you've been following us on social media you might have seen that picture already uh, as a bit of a teaser there uh, previously 
Indeed, and the podcast name will remain the same and you won't have to uh, resubscribe or anything. Just the little tiny icon that you see um, if you're playing the episodes from a phone will just be a little bit different. And um, so, yeah, it's all going to be good um, because the current one, yeah, whilst it's obvious that it's history and it's Sweden, it's pretty boring. So um, we wanted something a bit different. Yes, and we're delighted that Barbara, who drew that picture as a bit of fan art years ago, Ago, is happy for us to use it. So once again, thank you so much, Barbara. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have, and if you're enjoying listening to us in general, maybe you might want to leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. Or you might want to get in touch. You can find us on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, on at Flatpack Sweden, or on Facebook, just search the name of the podcast. Or you can send an email to flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our website, aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where you'll find lots of nice photos from when we went to Östergötland over the summer, uh, which you heard all about in our previous episode, and lots of other fun stuff. Yeah, so do check that out. Uh, see you again in two weeks' time, and uh, look out for the new logo in two weeks too. Yeah, bye-bye. Hey, Hej då!